Welcome to episode 253 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Batteries are said to be at the heart of the energy transition. Prices have dropped exponentially over the past decade, while energy density rises about 7% per year. Suddenly, it seems, lithium-ion batteries are everywhere, in our cars, in our garages as storage for rooftop solar, and integrated into power grids. But the battery industry is just getting started. Just this morning, I was reading about Chinese battery makers that are ready to roll out sodium-ion batteries for $56 a kilowatt hour, almost half the current price. And the news was hardly astonishing. Rapid change and innovation are the dominant char characteristics of the modern battery industry. We just take it for granted. Rethink Research has just released its battery sector forecast, and I'm going to talk to Connor Watts, one of the report's co-authors and uh, Rethink's EV and battery analyst. So welcome to the interview again, Connor. Nice to see you back. Hello again, Malcolm. It's absolutely, it's uh, been too long. Well, we'll make sure it's not too long uh, next, for next time. Look, um, let's start by talking about China. It's one of my favorite mm -hmm. topics these days. <laughs> Uh, and I'm trying to communicate to my audience the extent to which China now dominates the, the global energy transition from two points of view. One is the adoption of clean energy technologies, so wind and solar and electric vehicles and, and battery storage and, and on and on. And the second is to which it dominates the manufacturing of those technologies. It really has emerged as the as the clean energy, the industrial powerhouse. And I, my favorite analogy is uh, it's similar to where the the, U, the United States was coming out of World War II, where it was the dominant industrial powerhouse and then geopolitical and other and other uh, power came along with it. So what can you tell us about China's commanding lead in batteries? So um, as of, I believe, the end of 22, beginning of 2023, uh, China produced around 70% of the world's lithium-ion battery cells. And for context, second place in that list was, um, uh, well, uh, no apologies, the um, largest producer in Europe at the time was Poland with 9% of battery cell production. Second and third were South Korea and Japan, which was which. But um, effectively, China dominates. That's the cell manufacturing side of things. When you go to the cathode and anode materials side of things, it's even higher. And into the raw materials sector, again, even higher, particularly in the refining. So China's dominance isn't just in the cell manufacturing side of things. It's in pack manufacturing. It's in cathode material manufacturing. It's in raw material refining and conversion. It's vertically dominant throughout the entire um throughout the entire lithium-ion battery supply chain and it will take a considerable effort from the wider um from wider economies whether that's north america or europe to unseat it what do you think about the rumor and i think at this point it is only rumor though perhaps i've got it wrong you know that batteries are this year or next uh, sodium ion, maybe it, it's true with other chemistries, 
going to get down in that $56 a kilowatt hour range. That is, I, I, I found it very surprising. And that changes everything uh, for electric vehicles, uh, for home storage. Um, is that kind of where, our, can we expect that kind of price decline in the very short term? Well, lithium-ion battery cells, no, that's quite unlikely. So currently, um, cell prices off the back of lithium uh, falling as of recently from highs in November 22 to present day has um, brought lithium-ion cell costs down to a down to sub $100 per kilowatt hour. PAT costs still remain a, a fractionally higher, so about 30% higher or so at about $125 per kilowatt hour. But the main issue with sodium and how it could get to that low is in manufacturing scale. So when we're talking about the pack costs, we're talking about averages. And this this quite significantly falls through as a result of economies of scale. Sodium ion battery cell manufacturing and pack manufacturing is still very infantile in its um, commercialization. And... I believe I saw recently that a company in China is introducing a five gigawatt hour line next year, which will do a pretty significant job in reducing cell costs down to that sort of level. But $56 per kilowatt hour, you said, for sodium, um, I we could very well see that in the next three to four years. I don't think in the next one to two, but it depends on China. Again, unfortunately, we're not seeing that level of deployment in Europe or North America. So it is up to the factory of the world to bring that to fruition for now. Well, as all things uh, batteries, it, it runs through through China. Um, now, uh, I have been talking a lot on this podcast about the U.S. waking up in 2020, realizing that it had become dependent upon uh, Chinese supply chains, uh, clean energy was one of those that was uh, very uh, the Chinese dominance of, of clean energy supply chains has became a, a big national security competitive issue for the Americans. So they brought in, you know, the U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips Act and the Infrastructure Act, and so now we've got you know a trillion, trillion and a half dollars committed over the next decade. Europe is trying to match them. Um, it has a has a bit of a lead. Will the US, US and Europe catch China uh, in, in anytime soon? I mean, is it, is it even possible? Um, so something that kind of needs to be understood about the side of battery manufacturing that China dominates is that it's incredibly energy intensive. And particularly for lithium-ion cells, less so for sodium-ion cells, interestingly. But China dominates on the cost front in energy costs, labor costs, and economies of scale. It already has the scale to produce this sort of thing. It has the low energy cost because of its rather large coal fleet, which is quickly turning into a, a, uh, a renewable energy plus battery fleet for the uh, primarily for production headed towards Europe because of their... Um, environmental regulations and such. But the only reason that American um, or European, for that matter, um, production is coming online at all is because of this realization, as you say, in 2020, that the West is quickly becoming dependent on China. 
And I think Europe woke up a little bit later because of, um, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it realized, oh, maybe sourcing all of our critical infrastructure or energy resources from a single rather well, occasionally malign actor isn't a, the greatest idea. And so that's why we're seeing policy from both of these two states. Um, as to your question on whether or not it will catch up, it, it won't. I don't think either North America or Europe will come particularly close to China's manufacturing capacity for one key reason. It's heavily supported by the state as of right now, and it won't be able to compete with China, even with the support on, on the international scale. Other countries that aren't implicated in this quite as much, countries in Southeast Asia and Africa and Latin America, will still be more interested in Chinese supply than they will in North American supply. That raises an interesting question, because uh, I don't know if this is the case in with batteries, probably not, but it is the case with solar manufacturing, solar panel, pa solar panel manufacturing, and that is China has astonishing uh, amount of capacity, uh, surplus capacity. And it seems to me that it, with the US, US and Europe uh, trying to develop their own industries and supply chains, the China's next pivot is into more emerging economies, sort of the middle income economies. Now you're seeing uh, Chinese EV manufacturers set up plants in Thailand, uh, Indonesia, places like that, uh, where there's talk of, and, and I think there may even be agreements on some places in Africa, Latin America. I think Brazil is getting some Chinese uh, factories. And it's it seems like, the that that uh, is an, a mar not only a market opportunity, but that will be a major source of the acceleration of the global energy transition. China will be uh, less able to expand in uh, North America and Europe, and so it'll look for new markets and with really low costs uh, that are that are already here in some cases and coming in other cases. Uh, that will change the the, the landscape uh, of the global energy system. I just uh, am I out to lunch here. Give me your thoughts on that hypothesis. Yes, uh, your points with regards to overcapacity in the battery space, uh, similarly to the solar industry, you you do see that with China, and that they have far more um, far more manufacturing facilities for particularly. Um, lithium-ion phosphate battery cells than is needed whatsoever. It's some it's something like 50% to 75% over capacity. So lots of factories just aren't running a lot of the time. They're ran at incredibly low utilization rates that wouldn't be financed if they were built in the if they were built in the West. As your point as the weather expanding, yes, China is expanding with regards to middle income countries, as you say, manufacturing plants in Thailand, Indonesia, Vietnam. We are seeing a move towards middle-income countries, but we are also seeing a move towards Europe. North America, not so much because of the various issues geopolitically, but Europe is also getting significant Chinese investment, which may change depending on the result of its EV probe, which recently the investigators landed in China. We talked about that recently. Um, that'll come to a head in a couple of months, and we'll see whether or not China can feasibly invest in European facilities or whether or not Europe decides to align itself with North America. And that's very much going to be one of the most important factors of this year.
um, because it could completely and utterly eliminate Chinese supply from European prospects, as it were, in an act of protectionism, but also in an act of anti-consumerism, because European manufacturers can't beat Chinese prices without imposing significant um, financial implications on them. Right. Well, look, um, let's get into the uh, some of the issues that are raised in your report. Uh, the first part of the report deals with dominant battery use cases, and it starts with uh, light-duty passenger vehicles and heavy-duty trucking. Uh, which, What can you tell us about that? So the main conclusion there was just to look at where exactly in industry the bulk of battery demand is going to be coming from. Now, heavy-duty trucking, due to advancements in battery manufacturing and battery development is becoming more of an option um, as opposed to a lot of people saying hydrogen will be the solution towards that. I'm increasingly thinking less so just due to the cost of fuels and the operational expenses. Um, whereas it's been known for a good while now by everybody except seemingly Toyota that batteries are going to be um, the solution for light-duty passenger vehicles, and that's also going to be the dominant um source of demand going forwards, particularly as batteries improve. And we go below this $100 per kilowatt hour uh, mark when it comes to battery packs, not battery cells, um, at which point there is absolutely no question with regards to cost of ownership for EVs. What's your take on when the battery packs will dip below $100 a kilowatt hour, which is generally considered to be the threshold where EVs will be cost competitive uh, on the, well, uh, purchase price uh, equivalent with uh, uh, with internal combustion engine cars. So in 2022 was the first increase in the battery pack price seen, seen historically, which was entirely or almost entirely as a result of increasing prices of lithium salts. These have since collapsed in this new year. And for 2023, Battery pack prices were $139 per kilowatt hour. Now, you mentioned a 7% increase in energy density per year. That translates to a 7% or a little bit more, actually, um, reduction with regards to the uh, battery cell production price. Um, not so much the pack prices because they're a bit more static. Um, but we can see the reduction from... Um, we can see the reduction down to $100 per kilowatt hour prior to 2027. So maybe even a little bit sooner, but this depends on adoption. And it also depends on how countries adopt to China, because that's where the price is the lowest. Right. And one of the things you mentioned uh, earlier in the interview was that these are average prices, and there are, there are manufacturers whose prices are lower. So are we, uh, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, GM was able to uh, obtain from Panasonic uh, batteries that were below $100 a kilowatt hour for pack prices. And that and then enabled their Chevy Bolt to be very competitive. I think they had the prices down for a little while under uh, $30,000 US. So is are we going to see that where certain you know maybe a byd that controls its and you know it's integrated uh supply chain uh can get its prices down much quicker and and much lower and that gives it a competitive edge in the in the uh, ev manufacturing 
uh, and, and and the price of their their EVs. Yeah, we're absolutely going to see that. Um, in the case of BYD in particular, as you say, they're heavily, heavily vertically integrated. So they go from sales up to packs and produce the vehicles themselves and make the profit purely off the vehicles. Now, that's um, going to be sustainable for it. I believe Tesla does something quite similar, though they do outsource battery production to Panasonic primarily, but also to uh, CATL and BYD more recently. Um, there is going to be a disparity between that. It's about who works with who and what battery chemistries we're talking about here. Because when it comes to battery chemistries and overall market forces, you're looking at effectively the difference between high nickel ternary batteries or lithium phosphate batteries. Lithium phosphate batteries are always going to be cheaper per kilowatt hour. And the vehicles that use lithium phosphate batteries will be cheaper. When it comes to pack prices below a certain level, you'll see that more with the lower cost chemistries and the more budget electric vehicles, which we are increasingly seeing now. One of the problems we've been seeing in North America recently is that every vehicle seems to be an SUV or a pickup truck. We're not seeing that in Europe, not as much. And we, it's unheard of in China to have a vehicle that large. So there's also going to be a significant regional disparity with regards to battery costs, but that's just based on consumer preferences. Yeah, that your observation about the American market, I think, is timely because we've seen in the American press and from some some analysts this, uh, you know, oh my God, the uh, EV industry is slowing down and sales are slowing down, and customers don't want them, and yeah, and it, I don't, it, well, the data doesn't really uh, support that, but it seems like it, it's exactly the point you made that they're all either pickup trucks or SUVs and which makes them very expensive more than the average uh, car price and there's a, a and because and then the, because they're so big they also don't perform in the same way that uh you know if you're doing long distance trips and what have you so it seems to me that the the issues around what are going on in the American market are peculiar to the American market and not and and don't extend into Europe, into China, into uh, other uh, EV markets. Would, would that be correct uh, from your point of view? We would say so, yes. We don't see the slowdown in the US market as being due to consumers per se, but it's more so due to the likes of Ford and General Motors and Stellantis to a degree, but less so in producing cars that would have been great about three to four years ago when it was primarily enthusiasts buying EVs. Enthusiasts with far too much disposable income and the tendency to try something new. But as it goes into a mass market situation, you need to produce vehicles past the average price. The problem is, and we've heard this from GM in particular, in that they cannot produce an electric vehicle with that with a similar level of margin as the SUVs and pickups. So that's what they try to sell. But they've saturated that market. All of them have saturated that market. And now nobody wants to move further down because they haven't developed the manufacturing base because they've left it too late. They don't have the economies of scale when it comes to manufacturing, whether it be vehicles themselves or batteries, to be able to compete with Europe or China who are moving down into those segments because they never had the SUV or pickup segment to begin with. You do a bit in Europe, but nowhere near to the same degree as the U.S. So really, what we're seeing is a this is a, a, a problem uh, that that many analysts actually foresaw, which is that the OEMs were going to have trouble pivoting uh, into a mass EV market uh, and away from their their gas powered uh, vehicles. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is an industry shift where it is a little bit difficult to be an incumbent. You have these manufacturing facilities for engines and for gearboxes that are just utterly useless. They are stranded assets at this point. And we saw quite recently with regards to the labor with regards to the labor disputes that are happening in the US and that they want to reduce headcount. They really quite seriously want to reduce headcount. OEMs do. But they can't because of labor problems and there needs to be significant retraining. If you worked on a factory floor of an of an internal combustion engine factory, you're not just going to be able to slot right into a battery manufacturing without any training. It's a completely different set of skills that requires far less people. So incumbent OEMs have significant hurdles to face with regards to this, but the main one seemingly is in product right. design. Well, I want to talk about uh, less about the uh, light duty. Let's let's talk about heavy duty instead. Um, it was thought not that long ago, uh, you know, a couple three years that uh, that hydrogen and fuel cells uh, would be would dominate, uh, you know, heavy duty trucking, long haul trucking, and that seems there seems to have been a major shift in the thinking about that. And I'm wondering if we're going to see the neo model. Uh, where there's battery swapping, because I don't I, personally, I, I'm not a, I I'd be hard to convince that battery swapping for light duty passenger vehicles is going to catch on in North America or Europe, but battery swapping does seem to be an approach that would be suitable for heavy duty trucking. Your thoughts? The thing with heavy duty trucking, particularly in Europe at the very least, is that. You do have quite long wait times due to various worker regulations that mandate long breaks. So an hour break every, I believe it's uh, eight or nine hours of driving. And you know, it might be a bit less, it might be a bit more, I'm not entirely certain. So it's more about having quite rapid charging times and being able to utilize these breaks in the downtime and the utilization periods and then maximizing um, the driving time versus charging. So there's an optimization that needs to be done, but... Battery swapping is a little bit difficult because as of right now, we haven't seen too much communication on the sides of trucking OEMs because they're still trying to get the grips with batteries in general. They're making the shift and they're thinking maybe hydrogen is good, maybe batteries are good. Battery swapping is a step too far at the moment for trucking, we believe, just because it requires a level of integration. What we saw particularly with NEO recently in Europe and in, and in China is that it's doing the Tesla model of making its systems and its format available for others to use. Um, it recently incorporated a couple of Chinese companies into its business model, which means there will be more vehicles on the road that can use Neo's battery swapping systems. What we need for swapping to work in trucks is for there to be communication between OEMs to be able to develop this standard, as it were, for interchangeability between various infrastructure. Otherwise, you're having a too many railway systems sort of problem in that not every company needs a railway. They need to be able to share the same one. Gotcha. Uh, let's talk about um, stationary storage because there's been, you know, over the last couple of years, particular, particularly in the U.S., um, there have been uh, plenty of concerns over extreme weather events uh, in Texas and California come to mind where the battery storage addition of battery storage to the to those grids um uh, seems to have given them much more uh 
resilient uh, to weather events and uh, more reliable. Uh, so, um, so that makes me think that that stationary storage is going to be a very, very large market going forward. This is something that we've been ruminating on over a fair bit at uh, over at Rethink, and we're landing on the problem that the stationary storage market doesn't actually need to be that big, because with the EV rollout and with places mandating vehicle-to-grid compatibility, if people have access to a charging point and you can use these vehicles as almost like an extra BASS, then suddenly the amount of battery energy storage that you're required for things like um, load management is much, much lower. When it comes to disaster relief, that's where battery energy storage really shines because you don't want to be using automotive vehicles for too long or in too many cycles because that runs into warranty and usage issues. Um, but you can have battery systems that are designed not around lithium, but around other chemistries that are better suited towards um towards things like as you say disaster relief so form energy has a woefully inefficient system but it's 100 hours of duration it's incredibly slow to come online but it's a multi-day battery that can be used in the case of disaster relief for a small neighborhood for a small like row of houses that can supplement what electric vehicles are able to provide well, let's talk about some of the emerging uh, technologies. And of course, the one that everybody's talking about is solid state. Uh, what's your take on on solid state and when it, when it will arrive in the market? So we're going to be doing something a bit bigger on that recently. This was, um, well, obviously it's on everybody's mind. And uh, we're looking at solid state as something that will be coming online from 2025, but in significant capacity from um 2028 or so because these products need properly commercializing recently quantumscape gave some of its um cells for uh one of the automotive OEMs to validate of it going past i think it was a few thousand i believe three thousand cycles and retaining 95 percent capacity so that's a very um reassuring sign that progress has been made and we don't believe that they're even a market leader. We believe that generally companies in China are going to be leading on this as they have done with most of the battery industry. They were the first to it again. While the idea of solid state batteries has been around for a while, only China really has the capacity and the financial wherewithal to throw money at it. I interviewed a battery scientist out of Germany, um, Dr. Dirk Uwe Zauer from Aachen University, and they have a, a mm -hmm. big battery program there. And and we talked about this, uh, and, and he said, he said, look, if we were going to have uh, solid-state batteries in the short term, we'd already have them on our test benches. And we'd mm -hmm. be, you know, as independent scientists and researchers, the battery companies would be bringing them to us to, to test and to provide the kind of data before, and then I assume the next step then is to take them to the to the EV makers and have them validated, as you just mentioned. Um, so, are we seeing solid state batteries? The, some of the the different from the companies show up on test benches now. Is that the first stage, and are they there? Yeah, I'd say so. With regards to quantum scapes uh, system, they're already 
talking of automotive owners, I think some companies do skip the uh, the researcher side of things because they either have that in-house or the automotive company has that in-house. It's not always um, battery company to university to um, automotive company. To, not to discredit what, uh, what this man was saying, but when it comes to the inner workings of that, I think we can only really take what we're hearing from the from the solid state battery companies that are quite open about it. And QuantumScape is very good when it comes to giving information to their processes and where things are going. They recently had a setback and they let everybody know about that. Most companies wouldn't take that route for obvious reasons with regards to share price and the ability to acquire financing and such. So it's about who you can believe is honest, really. So if if my takeaway then for solid state, if I had to summarize it, would be that we're going to see some initial technology, but solid state batteries hit the market in 2025, uh, probably you know in limited quantities, and then over the course of three years, uh, th- those will will see uh, scale up. We'll see uh, some improvement in the solid state technology and but 2028 is really when you expect this uh, the solid state battery technology to take off 2025 is when we expect to see solid state batteries all solid state batteries it should be said hitting smaller markets so whether that's um i know QuantumScape is looking at smaller devices just to be able to test things a little bit that's probably what we're going to see we're going to see solid state battery companies targeting markets that aren't the electric vehicle market as of right now and developing the product through that and then sizing it up what we're seeing well but we will see semi-solid state batteries, which we already have done recently with WeLion, which who is working with Neo on the battery swapping side of things. We'll see semi-solid state batteries um, coming onto roads, even this year, but in very very small, very very small quantities. In the grand total of the amount of batteries deployed onto roads, it was it will be an infinitesimally small amount until. 2027 even then it will need a good amount of time to ramp up but that's when the ramp up begins because some of the kinks will have been worked out and that's when it can properly start taking up but in the same way as with sodium batteries they need manufacturing capacity to come down in cost currently neo's battery costs more than a car and that's why it's in the battery swapping system only because otherwise nobody would be able to afford that vehicle sure what are the top uh, two or three other uh, battery technologies that you see emerging in the, uh, well, you know, in this, maybe this decade? So the main one in the short to medium term will be silicon nanotechnology, which whether that's partial silicon or full silicon in the case of companies like Amprius, um, that's coming along at a fairly rapid pace. And the nice thing about it is it's a relatively drop-in solution. You don't have to redesign the entire battery around it like you kind of do with solid-state batteries. It doesn't fundamentally change too much. And the problems with them are quite well understood. Solid-state batteries are in a more infantile state as of right now relative to silicon anodes. And so increasing silicon percentages will be the main contributor will be the main contributor to that 7% increase yearly in energy density, which compounding in 10 years roughly doubles. So 
silicon nanotechnology will be the start beginning of that so it'll be the first maybe six years so up until 2030 at which point 2030 onwards will be solid state we're coming into significant manufacturing quantities and adding on top well not adding on top of, and superseding silicon nanotechnology as the technology to have in the most demanding applications the um toyota uh there was a story on toyota that had a uh a uh, a chart that um, I think Toyota had released to, to journalists. And it basically said that, you know, between the next couple of years, uh, we're going to see batteries go, uh, the, the range increase to 600 kilometers on average. And then in a couple of years after that, it would be, you know, to 800 kilometers. And then solid state would arrive in 2027, 2028. And now we're talking about range of 1200 kilometers. And is that a reasonable expect, expectation, you know, not just for Toyota, but for, for uh, uh, most EV manufacturers? That was Toyota's roadmap, if I remember correctly, which is only yeah, yes. goals. Um, we do not have significant faith in Toyota to be able to really say or to be able to meet its words with actions just because of its hybrid approach of quite literally building the most hybrids globally, but also in that it's still pursuing hydrogen to a point. And so it's going down too many different streams at once. It's not picking a side and we find it hard to believe that Toyota is going to be the leader in battery research when it's taking so many different approaches. We think that solid-state batteries will first come out of China, and unless Toyota is hiding a partnership somewhere with one of the leading Chinese uh, solid-state battery companies, we don't think we're going to see it. We see it more likely to come out of Nissan than we do out of Toyota, to be honest. Yeah, sure. Uh, understood. Uh, what I was getting at was uh, that's how Toyota sees, that's their roadmap, they, how they see range increasing for EVs. Uh, mm -hmm. Does that roadmap apply more generally to the EV industry? Are we going to see those kinds of increases in range coming in the next, you know, in the time frame that Toyota laid out? Uh, okay, I see. Right. I see it more likely, um, I think that might be a little bit ambitious for averages, but when it comes to the mid-high end, yes, that will be possible, we, we believe. Less so from Toyota than from anybody else, ironically, but that sort of pathway of maybe, um, what was the 2028 number? So uh, 1,200 kilometers, about 750 miles. So yes, that's absolutely achievable on the basis of improving nanotechnology, cathode additives, electrolyte additives, semi-solid state uh, um, electrolyte improvements and more deployment in that. We'll see that in the high end of vehicles in that time frame. That's what we believe. What, um, what about, what's the automotive strategy here? Uh, what, I mean, we've talked a lot about EVs and OEMs and, and Chinese EV, EV makers and so on. But is uh, what does your report say about the general automotive strategy? Well, first and foremost, abandon hydrogen. Um, 
don't pursue that down the line if you don't think that it's going to work. And unless you can beat physics, that's going to be very difficult when it comes to operational costs, which matter significantly to trucking fleets as well. Um, secondly, companies need to be able to pick a couple of technologies, get quite good at them, and then jump. It's more about ending on solid state in a timely fashion that can allow it to um, proceed well into the future, while also developing some market share and some brand recognition within the electric vehicle space. This is where a lot of um, American and European companies are struggling at the moment because they're late to the party. They're having to catch up in the research and development phase, and so they can't bring costs as low as they want. They can't get their hands on the technology that they want because it's taking too long because they're not very good at it. We've seen this particularly with the Volkswagen group having to delay its all electric vehicle platform a good few years, I believe 2029 it is now. Um, and so there's a need to compete with the Chinese, but they just don't really have the means to do it right now. If you're in a jurisdiction that allows it, partner with a Chinese upstart, get your hands on that technology and iterate. That's the best way to be able to catch up. Your margin will be low for the first few years. You can't be scared of that. You need to get started otherwise, or you will just lose market share once consumer sentiment shifts because of prices fall. I, I've been watching the uh, Chinese uh, EV industry more closely now, and it seems like uh, companies that can make low-cost EVs in the $12,000, $10,000 uh, U.S. range uh, are still reasonably profitable. You know the the Amer the North American companies are having a, a heck of a time getting their costs down. They're losing money on every EV, uh, and that's often you know advanced by anti EV types as evidence that EVs will never take off. But it seems to be not the case in China where the EV companies are reasonably profitable. Is, is that a an accurate assessment? That's due to a number of factors, yeah. I would generally agree, but it's primarily due to China being the optimal place still to put down a factory, to set up a supply chain, and to be able to make stuff. That's just true of functionally everything, particularly the higher, well, the mid to high value manufacturing. Um, American companies are struggling because labor costs are high. The incumbency um, is working against them because they have a lot of stranded assets. Whereas Chinese companies are able to operate on a relatively low margin and just reinvest. And they're continuing their R&D. They're hiring more. They're becoming larger and the economies of scale are coming into force amidst the low cost environment that they've set up shop in. So... They're able to keep prices very low and margin very low, but the margin's quite low because they're reinvesting a lot and they're profitable. But for the amount of vehicles that they sell in China, they're not making all that much money on each individual unit. It's just quantity versus margin at this point in time. It'll improve in the next few years once consolidation starts to set in. Though. It's quite dangerous to be doing that in an environment where material costs can change on a whim. So... We do expect to see more consolidation in the industry coming soon. One of the changes that has happened in the last year or so is the enthusiasm for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles uh, is start, appears to have dissipated. Uh, mm. 
And I'm wondering what you think of that because I have I have a number of readers who remind me on social media all the time. Uh, they 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 argue that hydrogen will never catch on in transportation. That battery is batteries have already won that that race, and uh, hydrogen is as one of them calls it hopium. And hmm. uh, I just what do you think of that? We do think that hydrogen has a place in much more difficult to decarbonize sectors. So we see it has a place in maritime. We see it has a place in replacing LNG as a carrier of energy from a country that produces a lot of energy versus one that consumes a lot of energy. We don't see it as a place, a significant place, at least, when it comes to road transportation that just will be superseded by battery due to superior characteristics, and in particular, low operating costs. Given an electricity, well, just given that electricity is required to produce hydrogen, and it's not all that efficient, there is no reason to, well, you can't assume that hydrogen is ever going to be cheaper than just raw electricity because of the efficiency losses. So OPEX is always going to be higher running a hydrogen system than it will be running a battery system. And with the passenger vehicle industry rapidly increasing uh, the manufacturing scale for electric vehicle batteries, those cost reductions feed into other industries because it's the development of a baseline that is happening much more rapidly than hydrogen, which needs to feed off of something, but it doesn't have the market segment to really ramp up production as of right now. Yeah, so I, we don't see cost reductions. One of the things I'm seeing in in Canada uh, and in the province next door in Alberta, which is very cold. I mean, mm. they just got out had a cold snap on the weekend. So for anybody, for any of the listeners who who uh, are outside of Canada, they had a cold snap where it was forty to forty five below Celsius and fifty seven below with the wind chill, and and there was a big debate about you know how EVs would fare versus internal combustion engine vehicles, and the EVs actually did really well. I mean, mm. better. They didn't freeze up. They didn't have to worry about starting them. But there is a problem in terms of you know loss of range, loss of uh, it with batteries. You, I think the commonly reported percentage was about fifty percent when it gets really cold. And, and I've interviewed uh, the transport manager for the city of Edmonton, which is reasonably mm -hmm. far enough north. It's pretty cold. And he said, look, we've got 60 electric buses, but and they work, they work great during the summer. They, they don't work very well when it gets cold, minus 20, minus, you know, somewhere mm -hmm. down in that range. And so they're testing hydrogen buses. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. if cold climate countries uh, for heavy duty applications like transit, uh, it, that might be uh, a use case for hydrogen that actually makes sense. It is, yes. But again, when it comes to innovations in the battery systems, we are seeing increased temperature ranges as one of these key innovations. One thing that CATL, I believe, has patented or at the very least is using within its new Shenzhen battery is that you can warm up the battery internally by sacrificing, well, instead of it just operating worse at lower temperatures, you can give it a bit of parasitic load from the battery itself and warm it up so that the battery itself isn't functioning at minus 40, minus 45, as you say. It's operating at a nice toasty minus 5 instead by keeping some 
um, effectively just some thermal plates on the side of the battery. Whether we see this throughout the entire battery industry is another question entirely. That will depend on the strength of the patent and CATL's interest in licensing it. But it's not an insurmountable feat for innovation to surpass as, as we see it. While hydrogen does make sense in terms of replacing that, it's also still much more inefficient. And it's not like you can have a bus fleet for summer and a bus fleet for winter. So you either take the fact that you have hydrogen throughout the entire year and you have to deal with the OPEX costs during spring, summer, and autumn, or you see if there's an innovation that means that you have a viability for winter, because otherwise OPEX costs are going to be double, well, 50% higher at the very least, and initial capex is going to be higher as well, because less of these vehicles are going to be made for the low temperature environment, and so they're going to be, and so they're going to be more expensive. I want to wrap up our conversation with some, uh, to follow up a, a point I made uh, early in the interview, was the tremendous amount of innovation in the battery space. And we've only, we've touched on some of it here with new chemistries and, and uh, you know, your point about warming up batteries and CATL's uh, innovation in, in that, uh, for that application. But can you give us this, my, my argument very often is because we get into lots of arguments on social media, as you can imagine, around EVs and, and batteries. But my argument is that many of the, we, it's hard to, to look ahead and, and forecast uh, what's coming. But I think we can take as a rule of thumb that there's a lot of innovation coming. There, there, oh, yeah. there's between you know the battery companies and startups and uh, and researchers and you know universities and so on. There's a tremendous number of of very clever scientists and engineers who are continually improving this technology, and it seems like it has a long way to go yet before innovation begins to slow down. What are your thoughts about the state of innovation in in the battery sector and? You know, just your, your general thoughts on it. I think, as you say, there is a lot of very, very smart people, much smarter than I am, working on these problems and rapidly finding solutions. It's it, frankly astounding the level of innovation that we're seeing. And as you say, it's not going to slow down. There's always going to be money to be made in improving the existing product and as you say until innovation slows that will be the case and so barreling towards these innovations and creating the markets and creating the environment necessary to adopt them is incredibly important particularly as we move towards what are going to be pretty serious stepping points for the earth in general and batteries are in my unbiased opinion that they are the key enabler of the energy transition because they enable power generation, transport, and they can offset significant um, efficiencies throughout the entire decarbonization landscape. And as decarbonization becomes more and more important, it becomes more and more profitable in solving it. So more innovation, I don't think we've seen even the start of innovation because as it becomes more profitable, more people research it. More people have the incentive to throw more money at it in an attempt to solve the problems that are facing the earth. 
And so anything you think about batteries in terms of growth, reasonable growth, logical growth, times it by about 25%, and you're probably a bit closer to what might happen. Everybody underestimates the battery industry, including us. And we tend we tend to be very, very bullish on these on these forecasts. Yeah, I, I what impresses me is that uh, battery applications like electric vehicles, uh, like home storage, like utility scale uh, storage, uh, are either competitive now with uh, legacy systems, uh, or soon will be, and mm-hmm. and you know w- without subsidies. Uh, so if the level of innovation that you're talking about that's coming, you know, it's in the pipeline, as it were. If it's competitive now, how much more competitive, how much dominant will it become as these innovations roll out over the next, you know, two, five, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, who knows? But it, it seems like it seems like on every front with with electric technologies from heat pumps to you know, solar panel efficiencies and wind turbine uh, blade sizes and on and on and on. This is innovation and lowering costs and increasing efficiency seems to be the norm. And mm. and, and, we, and we're reaching a, a tipping point. And so if batteries are the, the heart of the energy transition, uh, then it looks like we're in pretty good shape in terms of electrification of, of economies that are re- going to be required to decarbonize and reduce emissions, you know, in a timely fashion. So um, any final thoughts, Connor? Well, like with technology and innovation is both an amazing and a terrifying thing in that when it comes to battery innovation in particular, it's less about confidence in that things are going to happen, and it's more about what's going to get in the way. And we're seeing a lot with regards to policy and protectionism and isolationism recently, just due to various geopolitical problems. And so that isn't going to change the fact that batteries are improving, but it will slow deployment marginally just because of access to certain markets and problems associated with the deployment and getting these technologies out to where it needs it. the main That's our main concern. When it comes to innovation, we're not worried about researchers finding the right answers because as technology improves, so will the tools the researchers use. AI is making significant progress on material science and there's countless other examples where it's improving every day. So... There's reason to be optimistic. Technology wins in the end, and and we'll see what uh, what governments, policymakers, and uh, and and in- legacy incumbents uh, the role they play in slowing that down. Uh, mm. No doubt, we'll see just how much they can get in the way. <laughs> well, they have uh, enormous uh, potential enough, to, to get in the way. Uh, well, Connor, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate your insights. Anytime. Mm-hmm.